0: I'm speaking with Major Chris Benson, Captain Steve Laver, and Major Jason Rathjee. They are the co-founders of Afworks Ventures. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so AfWorks is only about three years old now, less than three years old, actually, and it already feels like it kind of has accomplished a lot. So the team seems to have brought in over a billion dollars in 2019 in venture capital matching dollars. And I just heard Will Roper say that's more than the last 15 years combined. And it seems like in 2020, you guys are going to be outpacing that again. In the last 18 months, you've contracted with 1,000 new companies. So that's a great deal. But one of the things that we often hear about as a complaint about the Department of Defense is that it spreads small business dollars pretty far and wide rather than making these big bets. So first, can you distinguish AFWorks where you work, from the broader Air Force Ventures program? And then second, how are you guys looking to provide regular and repeatable transition paths for new entrants to scale up into major programs of record? So
1: that's a great question. Uh, You know, a couple points there. First off, uh, we are only a few years old. um, But I think one of the things that we had going for us is that we really were building on The efforts of a lot of other folks, Um, especially if you look at what we've been doing with the open topic, you'll you'll see a lot of things that we took from places like DIU. So we have our, our 15 slides and our five page white papers literally pulled exactly from the DIU CSO. We, we pull a lot. I mean, you can see from our name, we pull from a lot of things they do down at Softworks. Uh, we have challenges that we do at Afworks, uh really kind of trying to keep an open door to work with uh, work with new small businesses and things like that. To leveraging a lot of the learnings that we have with the folks at MD5 um, are now Ensign. Uh, so, so I think one of the things that we had going for us is that we maybe started a little bit later in the game and we had to leverage a lot of the other things that were going on. So going to the next question about kind of what does it look like for a transition? So... So you're right. So in, in the last few years, we've kind of built this pathway where we do you know a thousand small bets, a few hundred medium-sized bets, um, and then just this past March, we have a uh, you know a few dozen uh, larger bets uh, through what we're calling the strategic fund increase program. And so absolutely, we, we, we hear loud and clear that people are saying, oh, okay, we're well, just going to spread many many small bets. You know, we're going to give a bunch of fifty thousand dollar contracts, a bunch of fifty thousand dollar contracts, a bunch of million dollar contracts. Uh, but it only really, really matters if you can. Run to transition and we could not agree more and that is a majority of our focus um, from the beginning and actually moving forward uh, and so we're hoping that uh, uh, crossing the valley of death we're hoping that the Stratify program can can help with that some of the ways that we're thinking about that are so imagine you're, you're on a phase two right you're on a, you're a company that's got a, an sbir phase two you had a couple million dollars you're trialing your, your solution with your end user customer it's working really well right well, what actually happens next is even if you really like it, how are you supposed to get that into permanent record? How are you supposed to palm for that? there's two years right So the analogy I like to use for that is is imagine you're on like a, a nice date with uh you know with, with somebody that you're really in love with right okay so we've been dating for a while we're at dinner all of a sudden, I realize, okay, you know th- this person's the one right um, you don't have the wedding the next day. Right, you have to you have to hire a band. You have to you have to pick out a wedding venue. You have to invite all of your best friends or, and your family and things like that. And so, there actually is there are some logistical constraints to to making things permanent. And so, I see the same kind of thing with okay, we tried out this technology; it worked pretty well. But in the acquisition community, you actually have the, you know, the two-year POM process, and that's where we really have to get through, get, get through that. We have to make sure the MAGCOMs comms are bought on. Uh, you have to make sure there's an acquisition strategy for it. And so the StratFi is really meant to bridge between the, okay, I, we think this is going to work, and where you can get to an actual program of record. Um, so I think of StratFi is kind of like the engagement. Right. Uh, and so what we did with the the stratfies that Dr. Oprah announced in March was we have you know, we announced twenty one engagements, if you will. Not all of these are gonna turn into marriages, but really where we're kind of at right now is viewing ourselves as as wedding planners and really thinking about if these things do not transition into real scalable repeatable contracts of real recurring revenue, then that will not have been a success for us.
2: Yeah, I, I Chris Chris did a great job summarizing, you know, how we're thinking about strategic scale for companies. And and I think to your point, Eric, one of the the big complaints, uh, I guess you could say, or I guess policy issues when you work with investors is that, you know, the government spreading out small dollars to small businesses doesn't signal significant interest from the government in any particular company or particular sector. It does access and touch many businesses, which is which is great for innovation, kind of spreading the investment across a number of different companies and a number of different sectors, but doesn't signal any particular strong interest from the government. But as you know, internal to the government, there is no one signal, right? I mean, you, you could say the Air Force is one organization, but it's actually comprised of dozens, if not hundreds of smaller organizations in their own budget have their own prioritized list of requirements that they're interested in investing in. So I think one of the one of the real benefits of the SIBR program from its inception was that it was always meant to do this scaling up of investment so that you could try a number of different things out at an early stage, see what works and what doesn't, and then increase investment in those companies as they progress. A lot of what we talk about uh, within our our circle is geared towards the SBIR program, but that's certainly not you know the end all be- all of what we're interested in. I do think though it provides a way for us to show with uh, direct investment into capabilities that certain companies are producing a signal of strong interest and the way that we can signal that is through a combination of those, multiple organizations and essentially the way that we show interest not just by financial interest but by you know corporate interest in the concept of we have peos and matchcom representatives who are are signaling to us at at, at Afworks and app ventures uh, their interest in these companies um, by continuing to work with them so as chris discussed you know it's this dating process is this process of learning more about the company and what they're doing and how it fits in the operational workflow of the MagCom and of the PEOs so that they can signal their interest in the company and the technology as well. So we're really bringing together kind of multiple partners through this process that increases the interest in specific companies that can act as a strong signal to the external community, which helps to buy down on uh, issues with kind of a shotgun approach to to investment. I do want to say though, that a shotgun approach to investment is a really valuable uh, approach to uh, funding enough, enough capability to see what is going to be able to transition to the warfighter. I mean, there's a number of studies that show that angel investors, for example, that fund a, a significant number of companies at small dollar amounts, end up having stronger returns over time, although they have more losses than a typical uh, angel investor or seed round investor that does fewer bigger dollar investments, their overall portfolio value is greater, right? And uh, one of the things that we have the responsibility of as stewards of taxpayer dollars and funding technologies that are going to be in the hands of our warfighters in, in the years to come is to not miss out on the next great thing right? And so what we want to make sure we do with these smaller bets is is really buy down on type two error. We want to make sure that we're not passing on something that really has the potential to become the next great thing, right? So we have a scaled approach to do that. And that includes, you know, this lots of small dollar bets, which are a critical part of the process.
0: Thanks, Jason. I hear what you're saying. And I think that the, uh, you know, the shotgun approach, as you called it, you know, that is important. And I want to get to that a little bit later with what you guys are talking about in terms of long tail solutions. You can't really have these long tail solutions unless unless you get enough guys through the door. But I want to, you know, get back onto the stratify and the sibber process here and then how you transition that to the program offices. So, you guys with the strategic bets in the stratify program have done a great job. You've been able to break that kind of For me, at least, it seemed like, okay. three million is the ceiling. Two years is like as long as you can go with the SIBR. And with the strategic bets, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys can kind of go 10 million plus even higher than 10 million. And the limit is actually four years. Right. So I, I just want to talk about some of the timing problem that I kind of see. So in my mind. I didn't know actually until recently that it was four years, but maybe that gives you some, some ability to kind of see some MVPs come out quickly and then be able to line up the funding. But for me, it seems like, okay, I need at least two years to kind of get that, that money programmed in the program offices so that they have a program of record that they can give to these companies. But the chicken or the egg problem, I guess, for me is that like, okay, now let's say I have 21 in March companies that I've given 10 plus million dollars to as a strategic bet. I need to basically start lining up money for the specific winners that I think are going to be the ones. I don't think all 21 of them are going to transition, right? But I need to know now which ones I think are going to win so I can justify them in the budget so that's there when they're ready, right? But I don't really know which ones are going to be the successful ones at the outset. I need to I need some time, you know. So is it like, well, I expect them to have MVPs. I expect to see something kind of come out and I can kind of start weeding them out at that point and get it ready, or is this a problem? How do you see that kind of transition period working?
1: No, no, I think you're asking the exact right question. And once again, I mean, these these are the things that we're really battling with right now. And then the stratify is one approach that we're using to try to cross this valley of death. I don't think, I generally don't believe in kind of silver bullets or kind of panacea type solutions. So this is kind of a one 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 bite at the, the apple, apple here, if you will, but one of the things that we did uh, when we when we thinking about how to, how to construct the stratfy uh, was definitely to make sure that you have all the the right stakeholders on board. So there's a pretty good paper in the last November that talks about the, the you know the interesting like okay people who actually have requirements people who are appropriate and people actually buy right with the PP uh, PPB process um, and so before we actually awarded any of those stratify. Contracts they needed to have buy-in both from a PEO within the Air Force, um, so somebody who actually does the acquisition side, but then also a requirements provider with from the MatchCom, right? So the people that are going to be actually going out and palming for these things, and so so absolutely you're right. We want those people who are in control of the the resourcing uh, process as well as the acquisition process bought in before we make these very large bets. And one of the reasons why they are able to be bought in is because these are based off of successful phase twos right so I mentioned in the beginning we've a thousand small bets 300 medium-sized bets a few dozen a few dozen large bets of those 300 or so medium-sized bets we can just pick the very best to go to those large bets, right? So, and we'll go back into kind of, you know, probability distributions later. I think we talk about long, long-tailed uh, distributions, but most of those companies are not going to be suitable for those large bets. Maybe that maybe that will increase over time, but we hope so, right? That we're, you know, creating a lot more uh, transitions. What we're doing is kind of creating that, that pipeline of solutions so that we can actually work with just the companies who really have those really, really successful trials, that we are ready to scale both from an acquisition technology perspective as well as a kind of commercialization and defense need perspective
3: awesome so chris's response was perfect Uh, from my perspective there's really two things that help us to avoid these roadblocks that you're referring to down the line and the first is pushing those hard conversations as far left in the process as we can Right, and so even pre you know, in phase one, pre phase two, they're having conversations among the users and the buyers of the technology that usually don't uh, get had for another year or two years down the process, right? So, in some ways, they're starting to mentally plan for what might a transition look like even before they get to the point at which they're ready to pull the trigger, and that's important. The second piece is this kind of series of uh, progressively larger yeses, or it's only, it's like the venture track. We are trying to get funding and just get get your foot in the door and a little bit more and a little bit more, and eventually you're having a full fledged meeting with somebody. Here, what we're saying is, look, you just you just need your time. That's all you need in phase two uh, as an Air Force customer. And then we're saying, look, you can add more funding to the contract, but you just need to bring one to one matching. And then we're saying for a really big one of these big Stratify awards, we're saying, okay, now that you're really ready, you need to show us you have a transition plan, etc. If we went right to saying, show me your transition plan and make sure that it's vetted out fully. Very few people would actually interact with the process. So that series of larger bets is one of the secret sauces, in my opinion, here.
0: Yeah, I heard uh, Will Roper say that uh, that the program offices are actually, in the last uh, year, I believe it was, they brought to the table $240 million to the Air Force Ventures in, in terms of matching funds. And then again, with the private capital that's coming in and then what Afworks is bringing to the table so they're able to multiply some of their money and in their investment. Is that money that he was talking about, that $240 million? And I think from you guys, he said there was something like 240 something like that million that AFWorks itself in the last two years, so maybe $130 million, $120 million a year um, that you guys are bringing to the table. But from the program offices, is that actual like programmed funds or is that CBER funds that they have on on their side.
1: Yeah. So let me. Let me uh, so we don't get over our skis here. Um, when we say AFWorks funds, we are. Uh, when, when he was talking about that, I think he was specifically mentioning SBIR or STTR funds. Um, and so we have a great partnership uh, with the folks at uh, Air Force Research Labs. In fact, in fact, uh, Afworks now lives within Air Force Research Lab. And so it's it's not that uh, they're AFWorks funds. They're kind of the Air Force SBIR or STTR program funds. Um, but those those additional funds that are coming from uh, we, we the, the, the the, the term, the, the bucket I like to think about them is is federal non ciber STTR dollars, right? Um, when we're talking about our companies, the goal is to get them off of the cyber dollars, get off of the NRE dollars. So they're actually selling solutions and they're transitioning and they're commercializing. Um, so yes, the the funds you're referring to are kind of, they're, they're not just bringing more cyber dollars. Um, they're, they're bringing actual dollars that come after uh, R&D. Okay.
0: Yeah, that's actually, that should be, that sounds like a huge win kind of. Uh, Jason, did you have something to add there?
2: We talk about palming for funds, but good, good requirements, as you know, are that are written into the, the budget are written as requirements, not tied to specific vendors or specific solutions, right? Um, so so there, there's certainly uh, cases, uh, I would say, uh, not an insignificant amount where funds are already budgeted for a capability or for a requirement rather and one of the capabilities that we back meets the requirement but does it at a higher performance level does it cheaper to the air force i mean you talk about you know the full spectrum of what drones can accomplish in the commercial sector you know there's a lot of air force bases that need to be inspected and are inspected that's paid for out of 3400 money so there's no reason why markets like that shouldn't be penetrated by you know, innovative companies that are producing new technologies that can meet the mission needs of our Air Force partners. So it's not always, hey, we need to go do some new budget action for a new appropriation for this thing. Often it's, hey, true innovation is making markets more efficient, right? So it's driving efficiencies to markets that already exist by creating uh, new technologies, and new capabilities that fill those capability gaps. Where the requirement in the budget already exists, we're just meeting it at a better better capability. And we're always opening the door to that. So uh, just like Chris said, you know, hey, these funds are program office funds. Sometimes they're MagCom funds with the MagCom's directly funding and it doesn't even hit the program offices. So there's multiple pathways to transition, but Chris is spot on. For us, it's all about getting to transition, which means that there's some kind of FIDEP budget for this thing that that's always a market the company can go pursue. And for the company, it's a matched incentive because you want to get off of non-recurring revenue and into ARR, right? So, you know, the incentives are well aligned with what the company's looking for and what we're looking for. And I think that's a strong reason why uh, we've been able to be successful in the past couple of years.
0: You know, I, I wanted to actually ask you on something. I also heard Will Roper say this, and he also said that you guys are now a direct report to him. So that's that seems pretty huge. But uh, he also said that before Air Force Ventures, it took at least six years to get from like your first dollar that you got with the Department of Defense to really getting like into a, like a program dollar, and now he's saying it's just a matter of months now. Is that that's a huge turnaround?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what, one of the things that we focus on is, is speed to transition as well. One of the areas when we talk with a lot of companies, a lot of these small businesses, is that is that time is money, right? And so if you're waiting months for for contracts awards, although I, I will admit we're working our way through COVID right now and had had some issues with our uh, speed of awards, but we really focus a lot on, on really speed to that transition and so one of the things we try to think about using the SBIR dollars for and as I mentioned previously about the idea of bringing out those program dollars and the, and the, and the non cibr dollars is trying to use those as an incentive. Right. And so instead of us just putting only silver dollars on a contract, we tried to make it so that we're bringing other dollars as soon as possible, as early as possible, Uh, because we found that if you are having these these conversations as early as possible and really saying, okay, well, instead of just saying, well, this is this is a nice to have if you're actually sitting down with legal and finance and contracting. Uh, and, and, and your command and figuring out, okay, like, I really need to find if some dollars to put towards this project so that I get these cyber dollars, right, or so that I can show that, that pro- the probability of transition, then that forces these conversations to happen earlier. So it's really about aligning incentives so that you're having these conversations and you're starting to get the funds in um, as early as possible.
3: The other thing that I want to highlight here, too, is just to make sure we're, we're on a level playing field in that, I mean, SPIR has been around for a long time, right? And what we've seen is, for many of these, they tend to start with earlier, earlier stage technologies grow them over time so I don't want it to seem like we've we've created this process that is amazingly amazingly—I mean, it's pretty awesome but it's 100 times better than that which was and maybe it is it's really great but one of the other factors here that's leading to this faster transition rate is we do very much care about dual use technologies and what we found is some of these technologies in fact many of them have some sort of traction commercially already and they need to further develop and adapt that solution to our needs and so the moment they get in the door for us they have a little bit shorter path in some cases to get actually fielded, as opposed to those that are basic research, that, that type of thing.
0: It's interesting you brought up the dual use. I, I, I hate to keep going back to Roper, but I was listening to him recently. <laughs> and he, I mean, he's just, he's, he's just a really great guy. He's a fascinating guy. Um, but he said something interesting. I want to get your opinion on like, what you think he meant by it. So he said that he wants to, quote, grow a new kind of defense industrial base for this century that does not create primes. And now I'll give you my interpretation. I want to see what you guys might have to say on that. Feel free to pass. (laughs) But I thought it was kind of interesting because it's like, I thought the whole idea was, well, let's create a new generation of primes. Like let's grow these companies into new primes and then we'll get churn in the industry. And so we'll be more like, kind of like the S&P 500 or something where like the top players are kind of churning around as opposed to, I have the prime and they're going to be there forever. But it seems like my interpretation of Roper is something like, well, we don't even want to make primes in the sense that we want dual-use companies that no longer have to basically segment off a business unit as a completely separate thing and then house it off so that it can deal with government. And that kind of requires, in some sense, like a revolution in contracting and cost accounting, but dual-use and not really a prime model as opposed to just churning through new primes that are just solely defense. What, What do you guys think about that?
3: So I, th- I think your interpretation is actually spot on, and it's us recognizing that. Uh, have you already talked about the the comparison of R and D privately versus DoD per year? So there's this big disparity between the amount that the government spends on research and development and the amount that the private sector spends, right? It's about half a trillion a year from the private sector pre pre COVID, and about a hundred billion per year from the government, right? And so what we recognize is that if we're going to keep up with any adversaries, we need to find a way to leverage all of that great work that is happening out there in the private sector, and to change the incentives in such a way that they Want to come work with us. And so I interpret that statement by Dr. Roper. Again, this is my interpretation is that if those companies are able to go off and thrive commercially but make those adaptations to work with and for us where it makes sense they don't have to change their focus entirely to DOD, rather they can keep building on the solution even when we're not the ones that are paying them to do it. The last thing I'll say here is that um, we have this concept of dual use and and defense only but the reality is 90% this is just a a wag, uh, 90% of technologies uh, have some relevance to the DOD. We have nurses and mathematicians and engineers, not only people who are flying planes and maintaining the aircraft, right? And so the reality is, if it's valuable to the consumer and to the business, there is a strong chance that it is also valuable, even in its existing form, to us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on, on that one, there's there's a few uh, there's a few pretty good quotes. So uh, one one of my favorite quotes that, uh, that that I've heard Dr. Roper say is, "We are looking to create the 21st century industrial base for defense, not necessarily the 21st century industri- or defense industrial base." Right. And then there's another one that says, you know, if we have all of the greatest fighter jets and tanks and satellites and aircraft carriers in the, anybody in the entire world and that all the leading technology companies are Chinese, we still lose. And so there's a lot of different focus, I think. Um, and, 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 you know, we could not be more lucky uh, and more fortunate to be able to work with a guy like Dr. Roper. And he really uh, has has pushed it, it, without him, none of these things would have happened. And so um, so fully, we are fully bought in, or at least I'm fully bought into that vision as well. So,
2: Yeah, exactly right. The same quote Chris just said, we're not interested in growing the defense industrial base. We're interested in growing the industrial base that's interested in defense uh, is something I've heard him say a few times. Uh, and it, I think the, the important part with that is the way we look at startups, for example, Startups uh, that are, are going through their growth stage, if they're thinking, hey, maybe it's the time for us to go see if the Air Force is interested in our technology. And having that as a permanent part of the institutionalized psyche of Silicon Valley, that at every milestone a company is pitching the Air Force on what they're working on, is a fascinating vision on how do we think that companies might want to do business with the government. Uh, And I think having companies that are interested in doing business with the Air Force or with the DOD is the future that we're seeking, right? And I think this is built off of years of understanding that a lot of companies were just not interested in working with the department, not because they weren't patriotic. They're all very strong supporters of this great country, but they didn't have the financial capacity to pursue a what is a fairly high barrier to entry. So absolutely, that's not just us. That is you know, changes in acquisition reform that have to come hand in hand. But I, one thing to, to put out there is we've gone through a number of acquisition reforms that have tried to lower barriers to entry, but they have not been paired with this focus on bringing companies along with that change right? So it's been, hey, if we lower contracting barriers or we lower making companies to find customers, that's just going to happen overnight and that companies are just going to come walking in. But you know, the explosion of OTs over the last five-ish years hasn't seen an outpouring of companies in. It's really getting out to working with the companies, showing them how they can do business with the department and recruiting them over to wanting to do business with us That makes this growth of the industrial base interested in defense possible. And I think the the two things have to go hand in
0: hand. Just real quick on you guys. I just wanted to ask, you guys said in your AFWorks book that you guys got the contracting time down to an average of 30 days. And when I was looking at DIU, they were kind of saying like their goal was 60 days but they're still closer to 90 days i think they're trying to break that is that because you guys are more on the cyber side and like doing more of these pitch events where you're doing a lot of preparatory work ahead of time what was the secret on that and is 30 days really the the number there
3: yeah so Absolutely. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that we do our awards in, in this, what we call a sprint type of environment, where you're making several hundreds of awards with everybody in the same room. Now it's virtually, but for most of these, everybody in the same room. And what we found is for phase one cyber awards, there's actually a lot of similarities between those contracts. And so you can have these economies of scales and these massive efficiencies by getting everyone together and just getting them done as fast as you possibly can. So that's the first one. is bringing in great people, training them on the process, and having uniformity between each award. The second piece is for the phase two awards. There is variability between those contracts uh, more significantly. But again, by driving these conversations early into the process, i.e., if a phase two is awarded, what exactly will the Air Force do with this company? These are types of things we ask the company and the Air Force customers across uh, across the force to have those conversations early so that when we go into this contracting sprint, we already know what they want to do, and it more easily translates to the actual phase two contract. So I guess the, the kind of summary of all that is, we found efficiencies wherever we can, and then we scale them against multiple uh, against uh, all the people who are coming forward to award them in these sprint settings.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll tell you that this is my main focus for what we've been doing. is, is a lot of the work that we've been doing at Aff and Ventures is, I think people when they think about what we do, they imagine that we're you know having coffee with VCs on Sand Hill Road or you know, or going out and just you know uh, taking meetings with all these startups all the time but really we spend almost all of our time really trying to refine the back end of the acquisition process right so we're spending times really kind of uh, making sure the solicitations are tight making sure that the uh, uh, the contracting tools are ready to go the FM tools are ready to go and in fact so much so that uh, one of the things that we did before a sprint is we, we worked with a software maintenance group out at Hill Air Force Base uh, which normally does software for like the F-35s and they actually did some of the some of the Kubernetes work on the F-16s as well and they helped us build tools to get rid of all the manual data entry for all the fm and the contracting folks right so when a lot of those folks come sit down at the start of the contracting sprint they're not spending time typing in things that they're looking off of a pdf to type into a web form they're double checking make sure everything's okay and they're able to spend their time talking with the, the and negotiating with the companies really checking to make sure that there's no kind of fraud waste and abuse and then if they have a question they can immediately raise their hand and say it's an fm question there's an fm person right across the room. If it's a legal question, there's, there's a legal person right across the room. Now, obviously, we're, we're adapting this to COVID and trying to figure out what that looks like uh, virtually moving forward. But uh, but really, a majority of our work is, uh, is really focused on this back end here to, to decrease that time to award.
0: Yeah, it sounds good that, um, you know, I hear like these software factories, and then also like the spark cells that you guys have, it's like getting this organic capability that you can do the small things that like a major program they just don't they're just not going to tackle that that's not in their wheelhouse but like you guys can actually you know from the bottom up not just in afworks but like the broader community and we're starting to see this a lot in the rest of the services too so it's really great that you're that we're starting to see a lot of this that they can address these small things on the fm side and the contract side but then also on getting real requirements out the door that help uh, the air force and you guys have in again. I, I brought up the Air Force book, but you guys have some some good examples of some of those things. And I would recommend um, our listeners go go read that out, and I'll put a link up to it. But I want to ask you guys one of the things that I've been hearing from some of the uh, the people on the investment side is that you know, so Afworks requires some private matching, right?
1: It's not. It's not required.
0: <laughs> so not in all cases. Yeah, um, not in all cases. I, I'd like I'd like to for you guys to clarify that. So in my in my mind on this on the first stage, like the fifty thousand dollar bets, there's no private matching that's required. But on the on the phase twos and then the strategics you need some. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the issues seems to be that if you have a startup that is majority owned by a venture capital or if they even have negative control, there might be some issues with this the small business administration in terms of, well that's no longer a small business and they can't get the SIBR and you guys have to go out and get waivers are you guys addressing that issue and is there like kind of a permanent solution that you guys see?
3: Yeah, really good questions. And I do want to clarify with the, the matching situation from the private side. For phase ones, as you mentioned correctly, not required. For phase twos, actually not required either. They are encouraged. And there's something that we can consider during our evaluation as a sign of the commercial potential of the company. As we move towards these bigger bets that Chris was talking about, there are more uh, refined rules around the different matching schema. Keep in mind, every year there's new rules that are put out. And they might be a little bit different from the last year. But I wanted to clarify that first. Um, not required, but encouraged, especially when it comes to the the phase two, those medium bets,
0: and the um, and the uh, the strategic bet It's required. That's right. Yep. Okay.
3: Yeah. So it's a really good point there. Um, and then as to answer the second question. Uh, remind me again. The so thing. the
0: second question was on whether you need a waiver be if they're they're majority owned by yeah, thank VC. Thank you for that.
3: So I actually want to give a shout out to this is uh, guess probably what I should be doing. A Shout out to the Navy here. So oh, um, yeah. the Navy actually got that waiver approved that you referred to to allow for greater than 50 percent uh, uh, venture owned companies to be awarded under this program. Right. So there is a waiver process. We're looking into it right now. The Navy actually did a really great job with theirs as well.
2: Uh, Jason, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, I just wanted to clarify, and this is a point that Steve made, private investment is never required. It's third-party funding, which is in, in the uh, cyber policy directive. It can be a number of things to include commercial revenue. So at no point or do we require venture investment in a company. And we do, I do want to make that very clear. It's, it's third-party funding that's external to the government. Right. So that's it's, it's commercial sales. It's it can come from a number of different key areas. Uh, and I can I can pull that up, but anybody can find it in the civil policy directive. And I just want to make sure that that's clear that we're not requiring companies to go to a venture investor at any point.
0: Looks like Chris is getting up to draw something on the board here. So
1: this is, we were while we were talking about the last one, we were talking a little bit about kind of the way we think about this. Um, and we spent a lot of time talking with our contracting officers, our FM folks, and our lawyers about what we're doing here. So the way I kind of view the world is there's like basically, you know, the status quo here, which we're pretty sure is legal, right? Although not not always. And then there's things out here that are clearly illegal, right? And now somewhere in the middle, there's a lot of things that, that we've never done before, right, that, that we are not sure, like this is the whole gray area, right? And so imagine that if you have like a new idea right here that we want to go try. And what we try to do is we try to put that there, and then work with the lawyers and the FM to expand the status quo so that more people can use it, right? And it's still legal. And it's still legal. Well, that's why we spend lots of time with lawyers, because anytime you're in this space, you don't know, right? It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like Minesweeper or whatever, right? Because uh, what if you're out here, and it turns out after talking with everybody, that it actually is illegal, Right. Then okay, even when we do find those things, we take a step back, we define exactly why it's illegal, and then actually we really try hard to narrow out exactly which portion is illegal, so that we're not seeding any of this other space, right? So this is kind of where, if you were to do a loose, a loose legal judgment, that it would be illegal. But if you, then we kind of really try to there because uh, one of the things we're trying not to do is that seed any sort of seed any of that acquisition maneuver space. Does that make sense? And so this is a weird way of thinking about it. And so you can imagine that if you're doing this all the time, right? So I mean, for instance, like the stratfies was one of those examples. It's like, well, $3 million we thought was the limit. Well, actually, you can do this and you can require matching X, Y, and Z. So if you do this a whole bunch of times, what you end up with is you actually end up with a new version of the status quo, right? And now you have all this extra trade space and acquisitions that you did not have before, right? But each one of these points is a lot of work talking with the lawyers and the contracting folks and finance and um, oftentimes other, other kinds of folks. And so this is kind of the way that I think about it. I don't know if that makes any sense <laughs> to you, but... Yeah, well,
0: that's our first uh, whiteboarding expedition <laughs> on talk, <the> acquisition, <laughs> acquisition Talk podcast. But <laughs> well, yeah, It's a podcast. Describe the shape, Chris. It's beautiful, I swear. But, uh, yeah, one of the things that it seems that you guys have done a lot of good work on, especially with the government purchase cards, because, like, that seemed to be something that a lot of contracting officers were just like, nope, it's illegal, you can't use it for that reason or that reason, and it's like, no, it's actually encouraged that you use it for these below the, you know, less than 50,000 or whatever the threshold is reasons, so it's good that you guys are now starting to be able to just, like, kind of bring out that credit card and, and get the small things on, so now you're bringing guys in, and then you're doing that big filter, I wanted to ask you, because you guys said something really great in the AFWorks book, and I love this statement coming from the Mercatus Center for a while. Adam Thier is a great guy, and Mike Munger also says, like, this is the most important concept in political economy. And you guys said, permissionless innovation is the key to long-tailed solutions. So does anyone here want to try to unpack that for me?
1: Yeah, so so my thought there is that you can imagine that if you were to take a a set of, you know, quote-unquote, you're to take a panel of experts, right? Um, And no matter how smart you are as an expert, there is so much more that you don't know than you do know. No matter how smart you are, you can be the smartest person in the entire world, there's so much more that you don't know than you do know. Um, and so one of the things is if you now require a group or a panel of experts to agree on something, what they will tend to do is move solutions to kind of the middle of the of the distribution. So they're not going to be, they're not going to be terrible, right, because they're experts, they can they know what's terrible. But they're also unlikely to be really, really great. Because sometimes the difference between really, really fantastic, and really, really terrible is kind of hard to tell in the very beginning right? Um, And so one of the things we try to do with the open topic, and this is the thing that that the chief and the vice chief have really pushed for is kind of making every airman an innovator, right? So on those phase ones, we allow people across the entire Air Force to work with these small businesses to try new things to explore. And by the way, a lot of these things don't work, right? And we find a lot of kind of the long tail bad solutions through those phase ones. And that's okay, right? That's what experimentation. Well, are they long
0: tail? Because it's it's only long tail if you keep throwing money after bad because like True. as long as you get zero out of it but if you you cut the if you cut it out then it's yeah, not a long tail <laughs> I,
1: I guess what i would say is they would they would probably be likely caught by this you know this 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 governing board of people that would say oh that's a bad idea i could have told you that from the beginning the only problem is is that they would also catch things that are on the high end of that right. tail and so you, you we also are finding some of these things that are like oh my god like this small amount of investment right so so you know some of our some of our phase 2s have have produced things that are running across the president's desk and have saved lives in theater within the first six months of what they were doing. They've we had we had one phase two that prevented a whole air crew from getting stranded in a foreign country during the coronavirus lockdown due to some sort of communication protocols that we had going on, and so those are those things that you would have never found. And that was for. $750,000, right? Just think about how much you know money and heartbreak that saved um, all those different folks. And so that that first phase one where you can really go explore really is kind of what we think of as permissionless innovation. Um, we've had uh, MOUs, these kind of customer uh, memorandums of, of, of interest uh, that go into these phase twos. We've had them signed from everything from I think the lowest is an E3 that I've seen. Um, and the highest is a three star. And so you have people and, and, and some people, we, we actually had this discussion not too long Ago, it's like, well, actually, we should be, we should be um, putting preference on the, the folks of higher rank. And, and that's the thing that actually Steve pushed back on and said, actually, no, oftentimes the people who really know what the problems are, are those E3s, E4s, E5s, or O1s, or O2s, or whatever it is. Those are the folks who really understand what those problems are, and they can see them from the very beginning. Now that's in a phase one going to a phase two. If you're going to a stratfi, one of these kind of larger, these big bets, then you probably want to make sure that you're having buy-in from a, from a peo or from the MAGICOM type level before you're committing, you know, significant uh, amounts of money. But for these low dollar amounts, fifty thousand um, dollars, a lot of these are saving a lot more money from just these little kind of experiments uh, from the very beginning.
2: I love Chris's analogies. Always, they're they're always, uh, I think, spot on. The important part with the CIBR program is that it was it defined by working with small businesses. It was not defined by what you can do and what you can fund with it um, outside of a very specific, a very broad, excuse me, broad set of uh, boundaries uh, as far as, you know, you have to invest in, in tech companies essentially that are under 500 employees in the US only. So that provides us just this amazing. Funding source to fund capabilities ranging a broad set of uh, requirements, um, and I think the permissionless innovation is a great way to frame the cyber program kind of in its entirety. And I think when you look broad scale at what what has been done for the last forty years in the cyber program, it's been pretty remarkable. And I think what the Air Force is doing now with the cyber budget, as far as the open topic is concerned, is not just Allowing the airmen to innovate, but also allowing the companies to innovate for the Air Force. Um, Whereas prior to this, we were very constrained with how we projected what we were interested in. Now, with the open topic, we let companies pitch their ideas. We actually don't even need airmen to say, "Hey, I really want this." In a phase one, we can let the companies say, "Hey, I've got this really great thing I want to work on. What do you think?" Right, and and we have our ways to evaluate you know, what we think with companies who are pitching their ideas. But the real value in that is that uh, the solution space that we're working in isn't constrained by, you know, specific, very micro-focused technology research programs. Instead, we're very broad with the kinds of technologies and the kinds of ideas that we allow both the Air Force to signal that they're interested in. And we have ways to do that. And also let companies just come in and say, hey, you guys have no idea what you're doing. You need this widget X. This is the next great thing. We have, uh, I'll give you an example. In a, a presentation and panel I was in a, a few years ago, somebody brought up, hey, you know, if a company's making cold fusion in a bottle, the DoD wouldn't be able to go buy it because we don't have a requirement for cold fusion in a bottle. We have no budget for cold fusion in a bottle. The open topic assumes that company under 500 employees and owned in the U.S., company can come right through the open topic and say, I have got cold fusion in a bottle. This is a capability you need. And we can go forward and start funding programs. So I think that, you know, allowing both the Air Force and the commercial sector to innovate together through this this kind of platform open approach is it it really provides that permissionless innovation that Chris was discussing.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I I love the just the idea of permissionless innovation and it just seems like what's kind of been driving a lot of the growth that we've been seeing in the past like no one I mean you you hear about people that are like oh yeah I was invited to the to the Google pitch back in the day and I and it just seemed like another Yahoo and I didn't really see it and it was the financial downturn so I didn't pick it and it's just like if you have to get a consensus on all these things and that seems to be what the government's all about right there's too many people that can say no and you see that I want to go through milestone B. I want to get into full-scale development. Well, at least 60 offices. And I've seen, you know, some of those offices. It's like, oh, I know that office that's counted once is actually subdivided, and you need approvals from all those subdivisions. 60 offices means, you know, really hundreds at least of people to get involved. So, you know, I... I actually heard on your Disruptive AF podcast, I know you guys aren't actually in that but uh, yet, but um, you guys actually were commenting on this. And I think it kind of relates back to kind of like Nassim Talib's, uh anti-fragility idea. And And what they're saying on the Disruptive AF podcast was like, hey, what you're really doing when you go run is you're breaking your body down. And of course, some of these um, ideas that we're putting money after aren't going to work out. And, you know, the oversight agencies, they're starting to get it right, I think. A lot of what you guys are doing is education on that, but the ones that, that work are really going to pay off. And if you're not, like, breaking down your muscle to build up, you know, you're just never going to get stronger, and then there's going to be a shock that really kills you, right? And that's what you're looking to avoid, We're, especially now. That was actually just the, the blog I, I wrote today, and I was looking through history, and it was just like, General MacArthur, before the Nazis went into France, he was even saying, like, look, one of the things about Nazi Germany was— their complete disarmament in World War I actually gave them the ability to tackle things in a radically new way and modernize. And, you know, that allowed them to be much more advanced. And we had, like, all these things like the b 18 It just wasn't survivable. It just wasn't right. And they had the financial resources to go do that. And we're often very, you know, not willing to divest from legacy platforms. But... But the point is you're going to have to go through some pain and maybe COVID is going to push that a, li- that a little bit right now. But you have to go through that pain and the, t- the time is now, right? Like if you're going to do it, you have to do it now because if you forestall into the future, the, the threat is going to be greater and they're already going to be further ahead and it's going to be harder to make those those divestment decisions into the future. Uh, I don't know if in- if anybody wants to-, to comment on that.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh, you know, the the whole idea of, Small failures prevent big failures. Right, right, and and they're not even failures if you learn, right? Exactly, right, and so um, and that's why you'll notice that we refer to them as small, medium, and large bets, right? I mean. All twenty-one of those of those stratfies. I mean, th- there's a very low probability that all of them will transition to program of record, right? Um, and so we want to make sure to set things up appropriately. That hey, listen, these are these are appropriate sized bets based upon the information that we have um, beforehand, and we need to continue to do those because if you're making bets with ten million, then hopefully you're saving uh, a failure on a hundred million or a billion or something else like that. If that right. makes
0: sense Yeah. And when I think of it as a bet, it's more like you know poker rather than roulette right there's not just yep. like you're just throwing it out there and the probability is already known oh in no this yeah domain, right? it's not random we got a bunch of players here right <laughs> yeah. like i
1: said we've got the you know i've got a peo and a Magcom, we've got private investor your private private funding sources um and, and 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 a great technology that's been proven out with an end user i mean you've got all the right things there and they're still i mean that you know i'm, I'm one of my big questions is i mean i'll go back and listen to this in a couple of years um, my big questions is you know what Percentage of those? What's a realistic success transition uh, probability for the eyes, Right, um, because we never say it's a hundred percent, right? Um, and so, you know, is it fifty percent? Is it twenty-five percent? Is it seventy-five percent? Is it ten percent? I don't know what the answer is. Um, this is where it's kind of an experiment that we're running ourselves, um, and I think that's really where it comes down to. Most of our efforts moving forward are. Um, how do we increase that probability of transition from these, you know, Strat into other things? Does it involve us spending more time working with the 5 and the 8 on the the budgeting, the requirements, and the budgeting process? Um, I know there's a a lot of, uh, uh, we're doing a lot of time educating folks um, around D.C. and all areas of government uh, through LL on exactly these processes and why they're important. Um, And so I think there's there's a lot of different areas there, um, and and it's going to take a whole of kind of society approach to To move these things forward, and, and the one good thing that I'm really happy about is there's there's a lot of folks that are working on this I mean like yourself i mean i was I was listening to your your back catalog and and the number of people that uh, you've interviewed that are working on, on on these similar kinds of things makes me very confident that hopefully maybe it will be different this time I don't know <laughs> yeah
3: you know, one one thing to add on that too is you mentioned about the this Armament of Germany example, I would argue that in peacetime or in the lack of an existential threat, it is a lot harder to try these new things because the risk of failure uh, from a a political perspective or a bureaucratic perspective is much higher, right? You have to come to the table and say, well, why did you quote unquote speed and this failed? Whereas when there's a wartime scenario, of course, everyone is speeding to get this done because it is such a dire threat on the outside. And so the point that I'm driving to here is that in this peacetime type of scenario, uh, it's actually really important that you have leadership who is take risk and willing to protect those who take risk and fail. And I think we absolutely have it right now. I mean, Dr. Roper is a good example that we brought up a couple of times, has created this environment where there is the expectation that there will be failures because those small failures prevent the big failures.
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, I guess like in the U.S. example, the only time we've really done this was the interwar navy period, but that was only because we had an international treaty which forced these types of reductions, and then and then we also had you know the Great Depression and all of that on the budget constraint side. But yeah, especially you know now you don't want to wait until you get it to industrial mobilization right before a war to say, oh we might be coming with the wrong force structure here. Um, and of course that doesn't mean we need to divest from you know, all the aircraft platforms that we have and, and like carriers and all that stuff potentially, you know, but you have to make hard choices and hard choices are hard for a reason, right?
3: Yeah. And the feedback loops are so long term, right? So if we make a bad decision now on investing in a particular technology, it might be 20 years down the line that we've just, I think you called it long tail. We keep feeding money into and we find out it was the wrong choice. And so the strategy of investing, you know, of planting a thousand different seeds and seeing which ones grow gives us a lot more flexibility within that trade space.
0: Yeah, and just moving to uh you know a more agile model where you're actually getting the iterative feedback rather than here's a 10-year plan, go execute that plan and then once you've executed the plan there's no you haven't hedged your bets, you're stuck into that and so we just have to kind of funnel more and more money into what already per- is perceived as a failed plan. Uh, I don't want to pick on the F-35, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I heard recently that there's 92 different variants of the F-35 in in terms of, you know, well, there's three variants, but there's 92 different specifications for that because they've had to go through different types of blocks and different specifications with with respect to producibility and sustainability. And so if we just understood that you're going to go through that no matter what up front, right, you know, just program that in and then you can make decisions quicker, pivot where you need to. That, that would have helped us. And, you know, that just seems like one of these, well, it's a huge program and, you know, would we have done it the same way if we were able to see that and start again? Well, we probably wouldn't. And so, and I think that's part of what Roper's trying to do with the next generation air dominance. And, and I was actually really happy to see that you know, Congress was talking about cutting that down to $500 million in the last in the last budget, and then it actually, they didn't go do that. They kind of, like, kept it closer to a billion. So that was kind of a, a nice, um, you know, vote of confidence kind of in this new model that has some people nervous, but other people are kind of gung-ho, and, you know, you, you can't just, you, it's hard to know up front, especially now that we're trying to transition these ideas into real major platforms. Uh, I wanted to ask you guys in that in the AFWorks book, you guys said something that like really struck me and I was just like, Oh man, this is like this is gonna change the world if you guys actually accomplish your goal. But this is this is the goal that you guys set out and I don't want to pick on you because it's a hard goal. It's but, me. <laughs> but, but it said uh, the goal is to create one new dual use unicorn per year in three years, and a unicorn is a billion dollar valuation company. 10 unicorns per year by the end of 10 years. You know, so that would be kind of like a landmark in success uh, in the Department of Defense and the industrial base, just getting new blood. And, you know, if you just get, you know, some of these things, what you're doing with the, the strategic bets, you know, you get a company into the program office with real program dollars. Well, now they're starting to build... That that go to market process where it's like okay I have the cost accounting day I have some of these structures that allow me to branch out so just getting in there sometimes is just like that that big thing, but you know like what are the biggest opportunities and then risks to that goal of getting one or three or ten unicorns per year?
1: Oh yeah yeah so that that's uh that's definitely mine um so you know this goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier where we can have the greatest weapon systems in the planet or on the planet. And if every single major tech company is Chinese, we still lose. Right. And so one of the advantages that we have going for us is the fact that we don't need these companies to be defense only. Right, and so there there are a, a good number of uh, of unicorns that are created every year um there are you know a good number of, of much larger than that uh, you know valuation any kind of companies every year i mean
0: decacorns
1: right decacorns or whatever <laughs> it is I mean you know um you know you look at a company like like stripe or, and and you know they're worth I don't know thirty or fifty billion dollars, which is you know uh, a decent portion of what Lockheed Martin's market cap is. Right? And Stripe was started in, I don't know, like 2011 or something like that, 10, uh, ten out of, out of uh, Y Combinator. And so, so part of the, the, the construct there is, so that's what we have going for it right, is the fact that these don't need to be defense-only companies. That's why we're looking at, you know, the 21st century industrial base for defense, not necessarily 21st century defense industrial base. Big challenges are that what we've had in the last few years, I'll, I'll, it's, it's been really good, but we're a long way from, you know, full success, right? So we found that that we were able to really work with the SBR dollars well. There's a lot of reasons why they're easier to work with than, say, program dollars or going out and palming for things and working with the uh, with Congress to get those things funded. And so from my perspective, we really have not proven... The very long term side of really getting, we, we still have a big risk on actually being able to transition these things to program record. Um, now I'm confident uh, that that we have we have got you know a, a good strategy and a fantastic team. I mean I couldn't ask for the, the team we've been able to bring together both at the tactical and with senior leadership support from from, from General Wilson and and Dr. Roper and, and actually we had a really good brief with uh, uh, General Brown, the new incoming Chief of Staff. And one of the things we we you know we, we talked about was. The ventures process can be an answer to kind of the Chinese military civil fusion, right? So if we can continue to press forward and, and, and fight through some of these battles and figure out how to transition these things out of CIBR, out of R&D land into actual contracts, actual programs of record, if we can crack that nut then I think we have a really good shot of, of, of hitting that. Um, but that will not be done only by people within the Air Force or only by people even within the executive branch or only by people within government. And so I think there's a lot of folks inside, outside of government and the executive and legislative and other organizations that are really pushing forward to make these things happen. Um, but there's a lot of risk, and we still have a long way to go for, for, in order to get to that, to that objective. objective.
3: I think that's spot on. One of the, the risks in the interim period is scaling, right? So the overwhelming support that we've seen for this program is really great on one end, but it's also a double-edged sword because now we've got this flood of people who have an initial expectation that is very good for working with the Air Force via this ventures process. How do we handle 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 folks who are coming at our door? And what we find is the more people who want to play with this, that means that's the more people we need to say no to. So finding ways to decrease the initial friction of them trying to work with us, to to make it, make it one of those things where they say, you know what, if you do not try to work with Air Force Ventures as a startup company, then you're missing an opportunity no matter what company you are. Jason, did you have anything on that?
2: Uh, no, no, I think, I think the guy's hit that. Really well. <laughs> I don't believe it. He has nothing to add.
1: You better keep that in the actual podcast
2: because I don't think I've ever heard him Record
0: say that. Record that sounds like, can we I know. Uh, <laughs> yes. Give me my ringtone.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah, so, you know, I... The transition problem, I guess that's probably one of the cruxes of the problems that we have. You know, like, you know, big companies can't innovate. Like, there's going to be a place for the primes. And we've seen, you know, large companies, even in the commercial sector, they've kind of reinvented themselves. But getting new new companies in, that's just something that, you know, you've we've only had like a couple companies that are really ideologically driven by their billionaire founders that are able to really kind of get over that hump and just kind of like changing that that kind of process would be really like revolutionary because those companies themselves are the like, and their ideas and and the ability to just say like, Hey, it can be fun it can be profitable and it can be a good use of your time to come work. That would be a great thing. I just want to ask you, um, feel free to pass again. Um, but if you, if you could suggest one section of the national defense authorization act, Hey, this, this might be a good idea that would help you, you know, what would that be? And, one thing that was interesting in the fiscal year 21 NDAA that we've never really seen or a little bit of, but not too much was they're actually talking a little bit now about financial reform and that was coming from some of the space force and they're talking about, Hey, mission budgeting. We want to see a little bit more of mission budgeting. And in my mind, you know, the ability, I mean, if we can kind of go back to what is the financial heritage of the United States where we used to budget directly to For example, the Ordnance Department in the Army, Bureau of Ships in the Navy, and then they would break that stuff out, but they can more easily transfer dollars in the year of execution. So you have an organizational budget. You have flag officers that are basically, right, for these PEOs that are confirmed by the Senate, right? So these are real leaders that have an organization that are provided financial authority that aligns with their administrative authority and then allow them to more easily transfer funds within the year of execution, but still provide real-time insight back to Congress. Where is this going? Here's a new start. Uh, We will give you some notification, but this is what we want to do. But we'll give you that transparency, but we also maintain our flexibility to use the budget and then transfer money to say, oh, look, Afworks has a great idea here, and they have this company that's doing something really innovative, and it's ready to scale. Let's go and pour some rocket fuel on it. I I don't want to wait another two years to go do this, let's pour some rice. So that's my idea, like mission budgeting towards, um, towards an organizational budget and then increase that um, in-house capacity like we see in the, in the software factories to actually do better job of, of contracting. What would you guys say? What, what, what would you think is a good idea that would be like, man, if we had this one thing, you know, that would just go way over to, to, to push the needle.
1: Yeah, so so I'll start off, and then I'll give the caveat that uh, we gotta have our uh, folks listen to it before it goes live, right? Um, so uh, the a couple things there. So you mentioned a really good point about it. Really comes down to relationships between the. Uh, legislative and executive branch, right? And so, one of the things we've been trying really, really hard is to get as much information, as much transparency about out about what we're doing as possible, right? So, we spend a lot of time preparing uh, briefings and presentations. Uh, we publish as soon as we're done with our contracting sprints. We publish the the companies that we've awarded to with as much information we possibly can do. Um, we try to uh, you know basically prove and 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 prove through transparency to to not only kind of the legislative branch, but also to the general public, that what we're doing is being good stewards of taxpayer funds, right? And that's just around the the, uh, the ventures process itself. And so I think as long as you continue to do that, you then allow people to build trust in kind of what you're doing. Congress can can fulfill their oversight uh, responsibility. Um, and I think that's where you start to build some of these things uh, uh, as you move forward, right? So that was one of the trades that we made when we do the StratFi is that we give reports and, and, and we're working closely with uh, the SBA and other agencies uh, to make sure that there's lots of transparency about what we're doing, right? So this is not just like, oh, hey, you know, we took your thing, and we're just kind of, you know, using it completely differently just on a whim, right? It's like, oh, no, we went like, this is a, a well-thought-out process, and by walking people step-by-step through that, that is kind of what's gained some of the trust, both within the executive and with the legislative branch uh, on some of these aspects. On, on specific things, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't think it's uh, within the scope of what we should be doing for Pointing out that new additions to bills, I will say that you know an area that that we found really really helpful uh, that we spend a lot of time on that's a, it's a huge cost to or it's, it's a huge source of friction for what we're doing um, is definitely once again going back for the, the you know the funding side about exactly figuring out. You know these small businesses don't want to be worrying about colors of monies and things like that. And if they're on a you know a, a research project, uh, you know an SBIR project, sometimes it's more appropriate for looping in O and M funds. Sometimes we're bringing in funds from other federal agencies. Uh, sometimes there's R and D type funds. That's an area that we find that the companies struggle a lot with. Um, it's and so, scary too because Anti Deficiency Act and that that gets that gets scary. Yeah, there's a lot of big problems that we go there. And so I think that's an area where um, we. We see having new new small businesses. If we really want to attract like any small business in America to be able to do R&D with the federal government, then there's some things that um, I I think are scaring some of them away. And there's things like that that I think you know the goal for these companies is always to get off of the cyber funds, right? right. Um, now the problem is is when they're working with cyber, it's nice. It's this kind of you know it's this predefined process. But as soon as they leave, now it's just all this kind of scary thing. And so you know the the, the transition period and figuring that out, I think is area that we're spending a lot of time focusing on that I think is, is causing you know some struggles with some of the small businesses that we're working with.
3: That was really well said. Good job, good job with the diplomatic answer that didn't get you in trouble for anything, but uh, still conveying a meaningful point. I so, haven't not gotten in trouble yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so from my perspective, again, without suggesting any specific language or anything like that, one area that is interesting to me is how do we align the incentives in such a way that those who have the authority over money and people's time are encouraged to divest of things that are no longer working and to find efficiencies. And one of the things I mean by that is, when you do find a way to do something that you're already getting paid for, you already have the funding for more cheaply or more efficiently, is there a way that you can use that back into your innovation fund or budget? Right. And so, how do we align the incentives to get people to try to save money to spend it on these innovation efforts is interesting to me. The mechanics of that I'm not exactly sure or wouldn't put out here.
2: Yeah, I think that perhaps a more interesting question to me is ways to utilize the NDA language to create more effective acquisition approaches, right? I mean, I think one of the, the great things about what this team has accomplished in partnership with, with AFRL over the last couple of years is is looking at the cyber Policy Directive and and learning from, you know, multiple other organizations who are able to creatively employ what is in statute and what is in policy to create a more effective program. And, and, you know, innovation comes in many forms and innovation for us was a form of bricolage. I think the NDAA language, you know, often has a lot of really great creative approaches that you're authorized to use. But I think at the, in the more junior levels, uh, you know, there's a General lack of either training or encouragement to think innovatively about how to apply the uh, language that's in the NDAA. So encouragement at very from a very junior workforce perspective to understand what's happening in the NDAA and and think about and be challenged to utilize these. Authorities within the workplace setting, people's day-to-day jobs, is is something that uh, is far more interesting because I, th- I think you once you encourage that type of understanding of what is in current legislation and encourage the utilize of these new, utilization of these new authorities across the board, which you know certainly you know the Air Force acquisition community is pushing for right now is something that is going to be able to break free and drive creativity in ways that we haven't thought about before. And the things like mission-focused funding, I think, can be achieved within the current financial construct if you think about the ways of employing, you know, the, the MAGCOM driven POM process differently. So, you know, certainly I think there, there's ways for us to encourage, you know, innovation within the NDA language as it exists.
0: Yeah, definitely. I'm sorry if I got you guys on a a little bit of a thing there, but I think the NDA it's just really important document, and I think they're doing actually a great job. They're trying to they're trying to push the department in the right direction. So, um, and definitely we don't want to just say here's a bunch of money, just no oversight, just go go do what you think is best, right? Like that's not. there's no way in in the realm of plausibility that that's even a good idea. I think more communication and Jack Shanahan, the outgoing director of the Jake just said some really great stuff on aerospace nation about this where he was just like, look, I would be lying or you should fire me. If I, if I'm going to tell you exactly to the dollar amount, what I'm going to be doing in fiscal year 2023, two years ahead of time. Right. But that doesn't mean I shouldn't be coming to you more often and talking to you all the time about What is it that, you know, what are my plans? What am I going to be doing in the next few quarters? And then what have I actually done in the past? And what do I have to show for that? If you're really saying, hey, I'm agile. And the GAO actually just came out with something. They're like, oh, well, the DOD says they're agile or they want to do agile. But, you know, most of these programs aren't actually delivering on an agile timeline. And it's just like, yeah, well you know if you're actually doing what you say you're doing you're creating these mvps you're getting feedback you're updating your problem statements you're showing progress then you should be able to have something that you can show congress on an iterative quick basis and be like hey look these are the things that you, your money is actually paying for and this is why you should trust us going forward with this one and then trust me in 6 months you know i'm going to have something to show you on that one and if i don't now you can hold me accountable whereas today it's like Okay, in two years, I'm going to be doing that. But in two years, I'm going to be either retired or somewhere else. And it'll be some other guy that you're going to hold, quote unquote, accountable. So what does accountable mean when you don't have this iterative conversation with Congress where you're actually showing things and then you're doing that on a rapid enough basis that you can actually be held accountable for what you did without muddying the waters between, well, someone else actually made that requirement, then I put it on contract, and someone else is executing it, and and so that's you know neither here nor there, <laughs> but let's let's move on here. You know, one of the things that you guys said, and I keep coming back to the Afworks book. I, I would like for our listeners to give that a read, but <laughs> you, you you compared uh, AFWorks to, uh, and I don't think it was any of you individually, but I'd like to get your your opinion on this. Um, The Lindy effect, which is basically like the lifespan of any given thing is always at half or is always at 50%. So it's like the longer something's been out, the longer you can expect it to be out. So like Hamilton, for example, it's like this really great play and everyone loves it. It's been out for a while. We can expect it to be out a lot longer. And the longer the thing is out, like something that's very new on average, it's not expected to live very long. And so, one of the things with AFWORKS is okay, you guys are three years. And I guess there's two different models that you can kind of think about. First is well, we're in a pendulum of acquisition reform, and in three years, AFWORKS will be gone. Another way of looking at it is well, AFWORKS, if it's actually successful, will put itself out of business, right? Like the innovation process and the transition process that can now be moved over to the MAGCOMs, to the PEOs themselves. And then AfWorks has, as an entity, it's done its job. It no longer needs to exist. And then a third way of looking at it is, no, the Lindy model is just a heuristic. Of course, it's not actually what's going on. We expect the AfWorks to be an institution, and it. And if we're doing good work, we'll persist in this, and we're we're building this bridge, and we have a niche need, and we're filling that need, and we'll be going on for a long time. So, what's what's your view on on AfWorks and and the Lindy effect, and like. Do you think it's you're going to put yourself out of business if you're successful or do you think that you guys will persist.
3: Yeah, so I, th- I think that's a really interesting uh, line of discussion. In my opinion, there's there's two pieces here. One of them is we live and die by the other projects that we support. And so regardless of whether or not something has the AFWorks name on it, if it came through this program as an example, one of those thousand small bets per year or, or dozens of large bets, in some way we've touched them. And if they go on to succeed and if we change our name or we go somewhere else or whatever that looks like, we still exist in some way, right? And that's a little bit fuzzy. The other piece of this is we at our core are an experimental organization. So in my opinion, as the tactical and strategic environment evolves, we should evolve too. So we might not look the same in three years, but if we've evolved to something that is serving the current environment, then we still exist, whether by a different name or function. So I think uh, because we have that experimentation at our core, uh, AfWorks as an ideal or even as a name will continue to exist, but it might just look different in three years.
1: Yeah, I might take more of the uh, option two that you brought about, about putting ourselves out of a business, right? And I think, like I was saying earlier, the kind of work we do is just kind of this just just tons and tons of paperwork all the time it's, it's not all it's not always that fun right like it's not as uh, sexy as you guys make it seem. I mean, it is like lunch. sitting down <laughs> sitting down and talking on a podcast is probably like the most fun thing we'll do all week right so come work for AffWorks. is great um but, but um um, but no, but really. So, so how is uh, you know uh, one aspect of how Air Force got started was uh, actually Steve, um, Steve, myself, and uh, Major Austin Delorme, um, who couldn't be here today, but she should have been, and you should talk to her one of these days. She's really kind of the smartest of the three of us. We started the kind of Air Force Accelerator Program out of a class or an extracurricular pro- uh, project at Squadron Officer School, and we like randomly briefed this uh, this uh, one-star general named General G- Gerald Goodfellow who. Who really kind of then uh, shepherded us along, and we briefed 40 or 50 GOs and all these uh, undersecretaries and things like that. And then we ran the first Air Force accelerator uh, in, uh, let's see, was it 2006? 18, right? The spring of 2018. And we once again, this is where we just leveraged everybody, right? We were working a lot with uh, Enrique Oti and the guys out of DIU. Uh, we used the folks at Picatinny for some of the contracting actions. We worked with folks at DITRA. We worked with the folks out in, at Hill Air Force Base. But anyway, so, so we killed ourselves to get this thing running, right? And then we did, right? And then it ran for three years. In that time, a bunch of other technology accelerators popped up And then it was actually, and so now I think there were 17 or 18 that ran in the last year that are similar based based on the model that, that, that was run back in 2018. And then actually that was when we sat down, was it about this time last year, Steve said, okay, actually, you know what, this has run its course with Afworks now, right? And so Afworks no longer individually runs technology accelerators, but that was one of the big things we did in the first couple of years, right? And that was actually how we came to and then we said, all right, well, now we're going to focus a lot more on, on SBIR. Um, and that's where I think actually, as we move on SBIR, I think we're going to have we've shown a lot of the kind of existence proof, right, that this is possible. Because once people believe it's possible, then they're saying, okay, well, you know, now I, I think I can actually do it. And so that's, what will probably end up where we'll go focus where we go next. And so you know, whether or not works in the name and these kind of things, you know, live or die, I think that we'll hopefully what will continue to live on is kind of the ideas and, 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 and being able to show that some things are possible one way or the other. We're seeing a lot of the things that, that we've been trying with the SBIR program picked up by the other services and even other agencies. Um, and so hopefully that will even, as Steve mentioned, even if whatever happens to works, some of those ideas will continue to live on
2: um, in the future. So I'm certainly a late a late add to AFWERX, uh proper, although I've been working with the team for the last couple of years. I've actually only been at AFWorks for about a month officially. And I think the, one of the ideas that I've always really liked about AFWorks is that a lot of people are affiliated or combined with AFWorks. So although AFWorks only has a handful of people that work for the organization that are billeted bodies, you know, we have uh, hundreds of people who have AFWorks email addresses. And are partnered with us through uh, volunteerism, through people who want to try their own ideas, try their own experiments. As Steve said, we're an experimentation organization. So, you know, does AFWorks as an organization live on? I believe so. I believe institutionalizing innovation, for as oxymoronic as that sounds, is critical to any organization that wants to create some place for people to go be creative, to try something new. And I think AFWorks by name, it provides the ability to uh, to go do that, to work in an AFWorks sandbox. Now, you know, the, our, our kind of core team has been focusing, okay, how do we transition wins out of that sandbox for the last couple of years to make them permanent parts of the force at scale? But AFWorks, you know, at its very core, it gives people the ability to come in and try something new in a fairly unconstrained environment. So I think institutionalizing that as far as you possibly can. Institutionalizing creativity, institutionalizing innovation is a grand experiment of Afworks. And we'll see how that turns out. But if it's successful, I think it's going to be around for a long time.
0: Here's a a, a bit of a random question. But you guys here, it seems like everybody at Afworks, everyone has a nickname. So Chris is Bubbles, Steve is Elmo, Jason is <laughs> Napa. Is, so like... Can you just talk about like what's that culture like there? And it seems like, you know, Afworks it doesn't have just like the director or whatever, right? It's like you have a mission lead and CEO at the top, which sounds very much more, you know, commercial like. So it, can you just talk a little bit about what's the culture like at Afworks and, you know, why how do you how do you see that in terms of your place within the broader air force?
3: Yeah, I think at any organization that has innovation in its job description, having more of a flat structure is important. Now, not completely flat, obviously, but the ability to speak your mind when something doesn't make sense and to put ideas forward without fear of retribution is really important. And so, I mean, call signs are one of those things that have been taken from you know, one career filled with all the flyers, which I think is really valuable because when they're flying a mission, they want to be able to point out whoever's in the other jet, like you're doing something that's stupid regardless of the rank. Right. And I think that's something that's really important for innovation as well. And I think that I think that the leadership has done a good job of breeding that within AFWERX. Yeah. I mean, that,
1: I mean, I know I, I came to AFWERX from the acquisition field where we don't do call signs. I and mean, Steve's a pilot, so he's pretty much used to it. But this was something that, you know, the, the founding AFWERX director, Beam Mao, you know, did a fantastic job of just creating this culture of openness and experimentation, right? And which, which, which really led us to... You know, go in a whole bunch of different directions, which was just kind of how we got to where we are today. And then I will say that focusing on culture is, while we were doing lots of acquisitions, really a lot of our focus is on culture change, right? So one of the big things that has come out of this is, and you should talk to him if you can, is is Tony Perez, who runs our spark cells, right? So I, I will posit that. All the stuff we've been doing with Air Force Ventures would not work if it wasn't for all of the airmen empowerment and cultural improvements and cultural change initiatives that have been done by, by folks like uh, like Tony Perez and all of his different spark cells, right? So what he's done is he's, he's enabled it so that every single base has some sort of entrepreneur who's just decided – on their own to take on this additional duty and stand up this whole new spark cell, right? Now, what do we provide them? We just provide them a network of other innovators and we provide them with, you know, uh, resources, and by I say resources, I don't mean money. We, they have a little bit of money through the uh, Squadron Innovation Fund, but how do you access SBIR? How do you, you know, talking with the other folks, and so you can kind of say, oh, well, how'd you get through this, that, or the other thing? And so, um, I will say that, you know, there's some, there's some great outreach things. Joey Aurora, um, who, is, who is also one of the one kind of one of the the, the key troublemakers around here. Very, very good at ecosystem building, both inside and outside the DOD. And so I I really would say that, well, I know this is acquisition talk. We really are stressing the idea that really, really great transformations happen when you bring together kind of an innovative person from the outside. You've got a, a warfighter, an operator, and you've got an acquisition person. As soon as those three people are all on the same page, that's when really great things happen.
0: Yeah, it's it's acquisition talk, but <laughs> it's, it's it's definitely more than that, right? It's like how do we get the the right systems and everything working together, and, and that's the entire culture of the thing. It, you can't separate the two. Jason, did you have anything on on the culture of AffWorks?
2: I, I just can't say enough. The founders of AffWorks, you know, I I came in, you know, as a partner a couple of years ago uh, when the organization was already. Up and running, you know guys like Steve, Tony Perez, Doctor Mao, Dave Harden. A lot of these just uh, incredible folks who started this organization years ago, uh, really kicked this thing off, uh, marketing room, and uh, created a space to empower airmen to be creative and thought about it through the lens of you know the full from from an E1 to a you know four star. How do we empower our airmen? Uh, and did a lot of research uh, behind creating an environment of cultural change. So this wasn't just thrown together overnight. There is, you know, years and years of uh, research that uh, kind of think empower every um, decision AFWorks has made to create this this type of culture change focused organization. So, you know, I, I can't say enough for, for the forward thinking, forward leaning, you know, just pathfinding activity that they've been on for years, and how that's really set up this organization for long term success.
0: Yeah, I would I would uh, recommend people listen to the second episode of Disruptive AF, which which features Tony Perez. There's a lot of oh, good okay. good bits right, in there. Yeah. So <laughs> um, so we don't need to duplicate some <laughs> of that stuff. But but you know one of the things that you guys reminded me of was uh, Kessel Run actually just came out with a like a short paper. I don't know if you guys have seen it on like psychological safety um, in the workplace, and I thought it was a great paper. One of the things he said was you know we put ideas over rank. And it kind of reminded me of uh, of a good Rickover quote, which was basically, I'll paraphrase it, it was basically something like, you know, I have civilians working for officers and officers working for civilians. I have junior officers who are in charge of senior officers. Like a, a nuclear reactor doesn't, know whether the person who designed it was a civilian or a military officer it just depends on whether it works and whether it was designed correctly so i think that that whole kind of flatness you know i heard about israel that they they have this super flat structure where like you know they call everybody by these nicknames kind of like what you guys have like bb netanyahu we got that in the military and it's just like the nicknames are kind of just to be like, you, you don't have to be deferential to, to these senior leaders if you have the good idea. And, you know, I think Israel is interesting because they're literally in life or death situations, right? And um, and so they don't they, they can't really afford to say like, oh, well, we're going to defer to someone just because he has a higher rank, even if the people who are closer to the ground have the better idea. So I thought that was something really powerful. Uh, I, I had a question. I, I want to kind of move away from from the the cultural aspects and just ask something that uh, about pricing essentially so one of the weird things like the things that 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 i see from afworks and from a lot of these kind of pitch days is essentially that you have like okay i have you know a 50k bucket here for these for these introductory ones like basically 1 million or 1.5 million and then you know even for the strategic bets it seems like You know, you you kind of have like a dollar amount in mind and it's just like, okay, now we open the aperture and everyone comes in and says, what's the most you can give me? What's the best you can give me? And let me evaluate your team. So it's a more subjective kind of evaluation process of saying like, okay, here's a million dollars and here's a bunch of alternatives that I can see. And then I can make, I can use my technical judgment from the panel that's, that has people that are FM people that have acquisition people that have, you know, airmen and technical people. And then I can just kind of make that choice. Right. And then I can just put you on contract. But like when they transition, you know, they're going to have to kind of come up with like that first time that they're going to have to come up with, well, what's the cost and pricing data? How do I justify this price? You know, because they kind of, it seems like you're going to have to, they switch models, right? Like once you kind of, once you're now transitioning now, it's like, okay, well, I'm not, I'm no longer, here's like a fixed cost. Give me the best that you can within there. It's like, here's a requirement, right? Price it out. And I want to know that that price is the best price and you're not like reaping all of these profits. And so it, it seems like you're, switching models almost right there from like a from like an evaluation based on technical attributes that's more subjective to one that's based on like a cost-based model do you guys have any opinions on, on that or do you see that not as really a problem
3: so one clarification too is even for the the small bets and the medium bets, it's up to fifty thousand and up to a certain amount. Yeah. And so for every one of these, even though they're firm fixed price contracts, they need to submit complete cost volumes, and that is one of the elements that's looked at during the negotiated okay. recognition award. So you know, for better or for worse, they are putting out that level of detail even for the smaller contracts. But that's really all I can say on that, just not from a contracting perspective.
1: You know, I, I guess one of the assumptions there, an assumption could be that when they go on to larger ones they're going to move into cost plus type contracts right and i'm i guess i'm not sure in many cases that'll be the case but i you know i think i was i think the the SpaceX one they just did was a firm fixed price right
0: yeah, i don't think SpaceX has had any not Fixed price contracts. Yeah. Like they, I don't think they would accept expect. I know. It. I was cost listening plus. to
1: your. I was listening to your uh, podcast with with Anderl earlier. Yeah, Matt Sackman, and he was talking about. Yeah, I don't know if we'll ever do a non-fixed <laughs> price one, right? Um, and so there's there's a lot there, of differing. You,
0: yeah, you get you get into a new realm of government cost accounting systems, and you yeah. and it's just like completely different because you have to be <laughs> reimbursed based on cost. So yeah. so you're thinking it's not it's not necessarily like okay now I'm in a program dollar. And they're going to put these types of requirements and have to go through these specific processes. It's more like, well, if you have a cost plus contract, That's going to enter you into a new realm of of types of justifications and types of accounting practices that you're going to have to follow. So it's more of the fixed price versus cost plus.
1: Yeah, and they may. And this is, you know, it really comes down to I don't, you know, I really am not a big believer of one size fits all or the silver bullet or panaceas. And so depending on the acquisition, I think there are times where it makes sense to do cost plus. I think when you're really pushing out a lot of these innovative things, especially when you're leveraging commercial capabilities and you're modifying them those dual use solutions, you can start to work a lot better in these firm fixed price ones. And that what that does is reduce the, one, the friction for the number of companies that are willing to work with you. But two, just, I mean, if they're not paying for all the government, uh, you know, cost accounting standards and things like that, then theoretically, I mean, yeah, cause, oh, let's be real here, let's be real here, like, we're paying for that you know, as a taxpayer, we're definitely paying for that. And so, you know, there are other cases where you want to save that money and attract those types of companies, right? And so I think, you know, and we, we talk with, You know, hundreds of of, of companies or thousands of companies a year, and some of them ask questions like that, and we say, listen, it's up to you guys to figure it out. I have talked with a couple companies that are finding clever ways using technology to be better about some of these kind of things, so that the costs of following some of these standards may not be as high as as they once were. Um, Additionally, if you're starting to see a lot of these new companies coming through, you may see a market for more and more tools to reduce the cost of doing things like that. So um, I'm a big believer in and, and align incentive structures and allow for kind of creativity to happen, not only within kind of the actual technical things, but also on the kind of ecosystem around it. And we've seen a lot of that come come to play with, a, with, with, you know, these, these you know, uh, thousand or so new companies that, that we've brought to the, uh, to the defense sector.
0: Yeah. Um, Matt Steckman actually put out a, a good article in uh, medium recently that was basically saying, and I think this kind of gets to the, well, does cost plus, you know, is that better for these large risky projects? And I think his point was like, well, can't you just get an IDIQ, an indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract, put smaller chunks of fixed price on there, and then kind of like get these feedback loops of, hey, let's modularize this, show me something, we'll pay you for it, and then like keep moving the ball on like these these smaller, more incremental chunks rather than say, Oh, well, let's put five billion dollars on one contract that goes for this long. And, you know, maybe five years later, we'll see whether you delivered it or not. I, I think we're running out of time here. So I want to give you guys um, just an opportunity to just, you know, anything that you think is important that you want our listeners to, to hear at the end here, by the way, there's again, the AfWorks book. We're going to put a link up to that. And there's also the new AfWorks podcast called Disruptive AF. We're going to put a link up to that. Um, but what, what would you guys like to end on?
2: The one thing that we didn't have an opportunity to talk about today is, I think, something that's near and dear to our our heart is data-driven decision-making, investment in the resources required to do appropriate analysis of policy, like the Open Topic program, for example, to see how effective... The program is to use quantitative metrics to appropriate value and iterate on those metrics over time is absolutely critical to the long term success of programs like this program like AfWorks. And I think, you know, from what I've seen, you know, my time prior to coming over to AfWorks is that the government as a whole needs to do far better investing in both you know, data science expertise and research expertise to be able to appropriate, you know, what is the value from programs. Certainly, it's something that F Works and F Ventures are investing in heavily, and we have a couple of programs ongoing where you know we're trying to appropriate how valuable our program is. Whether it's looking at transitions as qualitative metrics, like asking users how well they're utilizing the program, if they like it, if technology is actually transitioning to a warfighter, all these things are important parts of the, of the process. And, and anybody who's been paying attention to what we've been doing for the last couple of years has seen. Many, many changes over time, and, and they'll continue to see changes because that's a critical part of what we do is we, we try a number of things and, and assess quantitatively whether they're working or not. And I think that's an important part for all of acquisitions to think about how are we assessing how effective we are, both at you know a micro programmatic level and as more macro. Level across the DoD and across the federal government. Steve,
3: yeah. So uh, I would end with uh, we're hiring. So anyone who is, uh, <laughs> anyone who is interested in the things we've talked about, we we need really really great people to keep pressing the envelope here. Uh, a lot of the folks who've worked on these programs with us haven't officially worked for AffWorks or Air Force Ventures, and they've just been uh, passionate about the solutions at their own organization. So whether you're actually moving to a new job and want to consider AirWorks and Air Force Ventures, or uh, you want to stay where you're working, but become more patched in with us? Uh, we absolutely would love to work with you. So please come join us.
1: Yeah, I guess I I, I, would, I just want to reiterate my my two main points where I'm kind of f- focusing on right now is is really recognizing that you know all the other people that 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 are in that are doing these things, right? I mean. Where We're truly building on all the work that's been being done before and is being worked being worked around us. And the only reason why a lot of the things that we're doing are working are because of all the other people that we're working with all the time, right? Um, and so uh, to all the people, I imagine a lot of people who are listening to your uh, podcast are also doing this. Uh, so it's just a thank you. Um, the second thing is saying, from my perspective, we're still in the early days, right? We've got a long way to go. Uh, we've got some really, really big challenging problems ahead and the only way we're gonna do that is with with great people both on our team, um, in the DOD, in the executive branch, in the legislative branch, and in the private sector. And so I think, you know, uh really looking forward to tackle these kind of things. I think it can be done where we can ride this this bow wave, but not without great people at every position. Chris, Steve, Jason,
0: thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks, thanks for having us. Thank you. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.